God, our Father, Lord, we praise you today. And we glorify you, God, because you're worthy. You are of infinite worth. And we worship you. We ascribe greatness to your name. And God, we ascribe value to you. Indeed, you are the most valuable. O Lord, we rejoice at the thought that you are in heaven, sitting upon your throne, eternally happy and fulfilled. In fact, filled with joy unspeakable, for that is your nature. And we also rejoice. Father, we praise you for your power in creating us, in creating the universe and the world. And Lord, we thank you for the gracious gift of life that you have given to us. And we ask, Father, that you would Encourage us in our faith this morning to trust you more. Lord, that you would strengthen our faith and cause us to be on the alert, not to be swept away by Satan's deceiving lies, but God, that we would stand firm in our faith and that we would serve you with hearts of gladness and joy that, Lord, we would recognize the purpose for which you made us and that, Lord, we would walk in it, that we might walk in a manner worthy of you who call us into your kingdom and glory. And, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be filled with hope of your soon-coming kingdom. And, Lord, that we would not be discouraged by this fallen world And by all of the evil that is here, God, it can be very discouraging at times. But Lord, we look to eternity in your presence. When you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be any mourning or dying or crying or pain. God, this life is but a light and momentary affliction that is achieving for us an eternal glory far beyond all comparison. God, help us to fix our eyes on that day and help us to run this race with all the strength that is within us. Help us, God, to continue to seek you in your word, to seek after your kingdom and your righteousness. to cooperate with your Holy Spirit as you seek to transform us and make us holy and make us like Jesus. God, we want to be like Jesus. And so help us, Lord. Help us. We ask that you would strengthen us today, that we might love you with all of our mind and our strength. God, with everything that is within us, that we would love you. And as a result that we would love our neighbor as ourself. The Lord, teach us how to love. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. We thank you for his cross and for the cleansing from our sins. We thank you, Lord, that you've washed away the guilt of our sins and we are clean. And we thank you for the hope that we have because of his resurrection. God, you have conquered death. And that, Lord, soon and very soon, we're going to see King Jesus. And so to that day, we eagerly look. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're back in our study in 1 Thessalonians. And we are... Currently in chapter 2, and last week 
we looked at verse 14, and uh, we just began to start talking about chapter 15 when our lesson end. I'm sorry, verse 15 when our lesson ended last week. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Today we'll be picking up on page 27 of your lesson, and. Um, I'm going to read this uh, context of verses 14 through 16. There Paul says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Well, last week we looked at verse 14, where he said that they had become imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And we talked about the fact that because of this, that the Thessalonian church had actually become imitators of the church in Judea, this actually helps us to see how severe their persecution really was. That it was, in fact, rather severe. Because we know that the churches in Judea suffered a tremendous persecution. But not only that... <clears throat> In the midst of the persecution and suffering in the churches in Judea, the Jewish Christians set out to preach the gospel. And if you will, as a result of the persecution that they were enduring, they were scattered, and when they were scattered, they quite boldly preached the gospel. Well, if you will, these um, Thessalonian Christians um, were doing the same thing. They had, in fact, as verse uh, chapter 1 tells us, sounded forth the gospel in Macedonia, in Achaia, and in every place. They had gone out and faithfully proclaimed the gospel. And uh, nevertheless, they did that in the midst of much affliction. And uh, during uh, much persecution did these young Thessalonian Christians continue to preach the gospel and stand firm in their faith. And so, if you will, uh, Paul has discussed that at some length. Then in the beginning of chapter 2, all the way through verse 12, he discusses his ministry there and, and how the church was established and the things that he did while he was there. And then he began talking about, in verse 13, how they received the word of God and uh, how when they received it, they actually believed that it was the word of God. And in, in such degree did they believe this that they became these tremendous witnesses. And uh, there was a great recognition on their part that their salvation had come from God. And that the message that they had received had come from God. And they were powerfully changed by it. And so their lives and the way they responded to the gospel have become a model for us all as to how we ought to receive the word of salvation, the word of the gospel, and how we ought to respond. They became imitators, Paul said. Well, twice he's called them imitators. Once he said they were imitators of the apostles when he was commending them for their evangelistic efforts. Here he says they were imitators of the churches that were in Judea. And uh, this, of course, is related to the tremendous suffering that they were enduring. He says here, For you also endure the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews. And so he's saying, The kind of persecution that you are receiving from the people in your own country is the same kind of persecution that they had received from the Jews. Well, as he brings up the Jews then, that kind of launches him into this brief statement that he makes about the Jews in verses 15 and 16. I'm going to read that for you again. The end of verse 14, he says, as they did from the Jews, and then he begins to identify who they are. He says, 
who, verse 15, both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So here Paul has some very penetrating and interesting things to say about the Jews. Now, somebody tell me, the Apostle Paul is what? A Jew. Jew. (laughs) Not only is he a Jew, but he describes himself in Philippians chapter 3 as a Jew of Jews. Right? Being a Pharisee, which is a very traditional and um, conservative class of Jews who were extremely educated and were one of the main groups of Jews that were involved in carrying on the ongoing traditions of Judaism during that time. Paul was a very zealous Pharisee. He wasn't a mild Pharisee. He was one of the kind that was very zealous. So much so that during the time of the Judean Christian persecution, who was leading that effort? Paul. Paul certainly was one of the Jews, one of the Pharisee Jews, that was leading the effort to persecute Christians. In fact, as I stated last week, he was on his way to Damascus, on his way to actually haul some Christians off to jail, right? When he got saved. And... um, course jesus knocks him off his high horse and shows up and says why are you persecuting me and he says who are you lord and then christ opens his eyes amen and paul is powerfully changed and now he's a converted jew converted to what converted to Christ, the Jewish Messiah. Amen? Okay, well, so, um, here Paul is commenting on this persecution of the Jews, and he begins to talk a little bit about the Jews. He says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. The Jews have a long history of opposing God and his messengers. If you know much about the Old Testament, you know that to be true. So much so that they would frequently be enraged with the men God had sent to give them his messages to the point that they would kill them. Can you recall somebody that God sent as a messenger that they killed? Somebody, give me a name. Stephen, what about before that time? In the Old Testament. Well, they didn't kill Jeremiah that I'm aware of, but they did saw Isaiah in two. Right? Zechariah is one that they killed. We're going to read about that here in a minute. But you get the idea. There were many prophets that were killed. And uh, all the way back in their history, even Moses was at times in danger of losing his life (laughs) because of the things that God had told him to say to the people and the things that God told him to do with the people. You recall that? Well, they've had this history. They kill God's messengers. It's an interesting thing to be called God's people and also be called the ones who kill his messengers. Nevertheless, that's the case here. For this deadly persecution, Jesus sternly rebuked them and even pronounced upon them a final woe of judgment for this behavior. In Matthew 23, verses 31 through 39, here are some words that the Lord Jesus said to the Jews. He said, Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. That's an interesting statement. And it's related to something Paul says in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, 
And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Now, it was just after this where Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse to his disciples as they were on the Mount of Olivet, and they were looking down over the temple and all of the grandeur of the Temple Mount. And that's where Jesus, of course, prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And, you know, the temple being destroyed is really a symbol of something much greater. It is the end of the age of Judaism. Because when the temple was destroyed, you have to understand what took place there. That was the time in history when God, through the agency of man, brought to an end the temple sacrifices, which you understand were were the the core traditions of the Jewish faith, the daily blood sacrifices that were being offered for the sins of the people. Well, it was at this point in history when God saw fit to take that sacrifice away, a thing which, of course, was prophesied in the Old Testament. But as a result of Christ having come and fulfilled the point and the message of the blood sacrifices, And then, of course, consequently, their rejection of Christ as the Messiah. That was the point in history, some 40 years after the death of Christ, when God decided to take away the sacrifice and offering of the Judeo religion. And so there's a lot more going on there than just a temple being torn down. So, uh, if you will... When Jesus is here just before his crucifixion, these are the words he speaks to these religious Jews. Of course, you understand that uh, it doesn't say it here in the context, but I'll remind you in the context of Matthew 23, Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the guys who were recording the Bible and teaching the Bible to the people. The Pharisees were the religious sect that was conservatively involved in uh, carrying on the traditions of of Judaism. And so, if you will, they had whole schools and colleges, if you will, for raising people up in the traditions and training them. And um, in Matthew 23, it is the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is rebuking and pronouncing these woes upon. He says they're the ones who murdered the prophets. He said they kill the prophets and they stone those who were sent to you. These are the words of God himself to his own people. Of this killing the prophets, Stephen condemned them with a fiery rebuke. You recall that uh, Stephen was one of the deacons in the early church. And there was a certain day when he was brought before uh, a ruling council of the Jews. And he preached some sermon there. It's recorded in Acts chapter 7 to them. And just toward the end of his sermon, this is what he said. Verse 52 of chapter 7 of the book of Acts. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, if you want to know something that will provoke some religious Jews, that's it. Right? And, of course, you know what the result of this was. They drug Stephen out and they stoned him to death. And uh, it's interesting what he says, that they persecuted the prophets he said which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute he's accusing them of persecuting all the prophets 
And then he says that they became their murderers of the righteous one. These are shocking things for Jews to hear. It's an interesting thing to consider that when you come to a Jew and you begin to preach to him the gospel, he has to deal with the logical conclusion that it's his people and his religious system, if you will, that have become the persecutors of those who now preach the message of God in Christ. A great struggle indeed. Not only did they kill the prophets, but they killed God himself who had become who had come in the form of man to save them. They killed the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 2:15. They killed the Lord Jesus, their own promised Messiah whom God had sent. Now Acts chapter 3 and verse 14 and following says this, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Now this is the testimony of Peter. They killed the Lord Jesus. They put to death the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead. See here, the Jews killed their own Messiah, the Lord himself, and they killed the prophets as well. And to heap sin upon sin, Paul records, they drove us out. This is what Paul said. They had both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So Paul is kind of following a logical conclusion here. They kill the prophets, they kill the Lord Jesus, and now look what they're doing. They're persecuting us apostles. They're persecuting you Thessalonian Christians. And he's pointing out that these Jews are still involved in this rejection of God's messengers. He goes on, he says, They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. It's interesting what Paul says here, that they fill up the measure of their sins. You recall what Jesus said there in Matthew 23, 32? He said, Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And you know how they were going to do that. They were going to hang the Lord himself on a tree. Well, these Jews referred to here in this passage by Paul are the general populace of religious Jews who uphold the religion of Judaism through all of its traditions and rites. Okay, so so when Paul says the Jews, who is he referring to? Okay, I want to define that for you very clearly, as I just said. I'm going to repeat it. They are the general populace of religious Jews who uphold the religion of Judaism through all of its traditions and rites. Okay, that's who they are. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about religious Jews, not necessarily ethnic Jews. Okay, not just because they have the blood of Abraham running through their veins, but those religious Jews who uphold the religion of Judaism. You understand? Have to make a very clear distinction here. Paul's not just labeling some race of people. Are you with me? There isn't a bit of racism in Paul's statement. He's not racially biased against Jewish people. He's a Jew. Amen? Are you with me? So what he is in fact saying is he's talking about this religious sect of people who uphold the religion of Judaism. When Paul says Jews in this context, that's what he means. Okay? These are the religious Jews who meet regularly on the Sabbath in the synagogues. And these are the synagogues that Paul would enter to begin to try and convince them that their Messiah had come in the person of the Lord Jesus and that they could be saved through faith in him. Okay? So you understand. Remember I told you last week, this was Paul's ministry. He would go from town to town and he would enter into the synagogue because there he had a platform to begin to teach the Bible. 
And so Paul would enter in there and he'd pull out his Bible and he'd start telling them from the Bible that Jesus was the Christ. Over and over, the New Testament tells us that Paul was there trying to convince them that Jesus was the Christ from the Scriptures. And he would point to these Old Testament prophecies and he would then he would point to the historical account of the Lord Jesus and he would say, see, this is the promised Messiah, Jesus. And he has established a... Uh, a living hope in himself through faith in what he has done. More than this, he's fulfilled the Jewish religion and become the ultimate blood sacrifice. A thing to which all the signs and all the prophets all point. A thing to which Jesus fulfilled perfectly. He was the ultimate blood sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Not only that, but the Old Testament specifically verbatim prophesies about him becoming the blood sacrifice. Amen? Amen. And then, of course, Jesus fulfilled that in the flesh. And all of the other various prophecies that speak about him being the Son of God and yet the Son of David, right? And, And all of these other things. Paul would go into the synagogue and he would, from their scriptures, prove that Jesus was the Christ. And, of course... Many would be saved. Many would believe Paul's message. God would open their eyes by regeneration and they would be saved. And yet there was this other group that was among them who would not be convinced. And it was this group that would always persecute Paul. And as I told you many times, you know, it was a crapshoot. It wasn't long before... Paul was run out of the synagogue if he wasn't run out of town, right? Or they weren't letting him down in a basket through the outer wall of the city so that they didn't kill him, right? Or, or some other plot. They were always plotting to kill him. These Jews were frequently plotting to kill um, the new messengers of God, the new prophets and wise men and scribes who had come to give them the gospel and to tell them, Their religion had been fulfilled. Well, these Jews had become so steeped in their own tradition that it blinded them to the true worship of God. Now think about that statement. These Jews had become so steeped in their own tradition that it blinded them to the true worship of God. Now I want to ask you a question. Before Christianity began before Christianity was implemented by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, what religion was the true worship of God? Judaism. So you have in in form and in embodiment, in Judaism, the true worship of God, which ultimately comes to a point in history when it becomes fulfilled, okay, and if you will, blossoms in to a whole new religious way. Okay? And, and, and when that happens, the people of this old religion, some of them are converted, and some of them hold tightly to the old tradition and reject this new way. Are you with me? Now think about this. Think about being so steeped in your own religious tradition that you're unwilling to hear the real truth when it comes. And I want to ask you a question. Is that possible in Christianity? Yeah. I would point you to Matthew 15, verses 3 through 9. Where Jesus tells the Jews, you people are so steeped in your tradition, you nullify the commandments of God. You're so caught up in performing your works and making much of yourself and making much of your religious activity that you're looking through the forest and you can't even see the trees. You're so committed to tradition, God is here among you and you don't even know it. And I want to affirm what you just said. In fact, it can happen in Christianity. In fact, it has been happening for 2,000 years. Amen? And God help us to beware that we're not so caught up in tradition that the Lord is among us and we don't even know it. 
So much was this the case that when their promised Messiah finally came, they did not recognize him and receive him, but instead they killed him. Imagine being so zealous for your religion that the very fulfillment of your religion itself comes in your generation and you reject it utterly. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens because your heart is not pure. And you honor him with your lips, but your heart is far from him. That with your actions and your words, you profess the truth, but inside your heart, you really don't believe it. That's how that happens. And so these Jews are so zealous for Judaism. I mean, mean, we're talking about guys who quote half the Old Testament. Right? I mean, the devotion that they go to over the Word of God is something that is, in in one sense, very beautiful, and in another sense, absolutely corrupt. Mm -hmm. And yet they're so devoted to this place that the Lord, the Messiah, the Anointed One Himself, their King, the long-promised King, comes and they kill him. Now that is religious deception at its highest. Amen? This reflects the same religious spirit which was always among them when they would kill the prophets and those God would send to speak his word to them, the very word they held in such high esteem. You understand how highly the Jews esteem the word of God? Some of you know more about this than I do. You know what a phylactery is, right? They, they, would, they would take the word of God. They literally would obey the Shema, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, right? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, right? And he goes on, you shall uh, teach it to your children diligently. You shall talk about it when you sit down, lie down, get up and walk along the way, right? Write it on your gates, Write it on your doors. May it be as a frontlet before your eyes. So you know what they did? They'd take the word of God and they'd write it down on paper and they'd stuff it in a box and then they'd hang the box from their forehead. That's a phylactery. Yes? They still do that to this day. What's the point? The point is they esteem the word of God so highly. Yet, the embodiment of truth that is in the Word of God, they are blinded to. And they were blinded to that in the day of Jesus. And so they killed him. This is a tremendous phenomenon. And and yet, in it, I see a great warning to me and to you. Amen? That we're not so caught up in our religious tradition. That we're not so caught up in our rites, our rituals, our sacraments, our form of worship, that we miss the true reality of what it means to be a Christian and to believe the gospel. Amen? Now, it is these Jews that Paul speaks of when he says, they are not pleasing to God a fact which is manifested in the rejection of God's messengers. But moreover, he says that they are hostile to all men because they are hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. This was true at the establishment of the church in Jerusalem and characterized the Jews' response to the gospel in every place. Here's what I'm saying. When the gospel first began to be proclaimed by Peter and the apostles, Not only did they reject the message, but they tried to shut up the apostles as well so that they wouldn't go out and preach the message. Paul says because of this, they're hostile to all men. Now now God has set the, the Jews aside to be a light to the whole world. 
to the Gentiles, and that they want to squelch. Okay? Of course, the Jews in this context is the religious Jews, not the believing Jews. <laughs> right? Peter was a believing Jew. Paul was a believing Jew. All the churches in Judea were made up of believing Jews. Amen? So God hasn't forsaken His people whom He foreknew. That's what He says. But He has a remnant among them as well. Right? <clears throat> but consider that um, this is how the Jews responded to the gospel in every place. They persecuted the apostles and prophets in Jerusalem and had them beaten and killed. Acts 4, verses 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them. Now the Sadducees were another religious sect, just, just like the Pharisees. But of course they had a little bit different system of holding the traditions and a little bit uh, different doctrinal understanding than the Pharisees had. Two different religious sects of Jews. But both religious and both very much given to tradition and rite. Okay, or ritual. Uh, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So these... These apostles are preaching the gospel and people are coming in droves. They're coming in droves. You understand the response here was 5,000? What was the response on the day of Pentecost? 3,000. Here's another 5,000. Talking about at least 8,000 people who have come to be converted when the early church began to preach the gospel right there in Jerusalem. Okay? Well, what did they do? What, what did the Jews do in response to this? They seized them and put them in jail. <laughs> and then they sat them down and they said, you better stop preaching this Jesus thing, right? Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. Flogged means they beat the stuffing out of them. They beat him up real bad. And then they ordered them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Of course, you know what the apostles' response to that was, right? We, all, we ought to obey God rather than men. Right? They went out the next day and they were in the temple again, preaching the gospel again. Amen? Of course, the Jews were greatly confounded by this. And so even now, the Jews oppose the true message of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though God's ultimate purpose has now been completed through Christ, they utterly reject the very thing God had designed to do through them for long ages past. Of this rejection and killing of the Messiah and the prophets, it has culminated in them hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Of this, Paul writes and says with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. The idea here is that they pile up their sins to the limit before God or that the judgment for their sins is finally ripe. The idea of fill up the measure uh, in the Greek has the idea of piling up. Piling up. Okay? That they fill up the measure of their sins. Consider that not only had they killed the prophets but even their own Messiah sent by God to save them. In order to pile up sins even more, they not only persecuted and killed Christians in the first church in Judea, but even in Thessalonica they were opposing God's gospel of salvation to the Gentile world and continuing to persecute God's people. This piling up of sins causes Paul to speak about them as if their judgment was finally ripe. Do you understand? Christ has come. Judaism has been fulfilled. Now they're preaching a gospel of grace. Now they're preaching a gospel of trusting in Christ as the Messiah who has come and saved men from their sins. And in this uh, way, Judaism has come to its fulfillment. And yet these religious Jews 
refuse to see that. So what do they do? They seek to keep that message from being preached to others so that they may be saved. Not only are they squashing God's messengers, they're squashing God's message. They are in this opposing who? God. God. And you know what? God has dealt a serious blow. And this is the very thing that Jesus prophesied would happen. Of course, I'm talking about the end of the age of Judaism and the destruction of the temple and the temple sacrifice. You see, God took away their rituals. He took away the rituals he gave them. He took away the rituals he implemented among them. And to this day, it has not been restored. Very interesting thing to consider. Paul says here, But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. This is to say that as the Jews have reached that place of judgment where they are beyond hope, having rejected the final fulfillment of the word of God, for whom and through whom did they exist as God's people? So think about what he's saying. Wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now, what is wrath? Where does it come from? God. God. It's God's anger. It's God's judgment. Right? And Paul says it's come upon them to the utmost. Now, how do we know that to be true? I want to give you one telling sign. Okay? And here it is. (coughs) Utter blindness to the truth. You know that God's wrath is upon somebody when you're shouting the truth in their ear and they cannot hear it. When the truth is right before their eyes and they cannot see it. That, my friends, is wrath. And in that, there is no hope. Because if you cannot see and hear the truth and respond to it, you are beyond hope. Are you with me? And, and so it is that we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen? But this is the place they're at. They've come to this place of utter rejection of what God has done. And this is what Paul speaks of when he says, wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Look, <laughs> the system was fulfilled. The Messiah came. Everything God... Uh, has sought to do through their sacrificial system has come to its fulfillment and it's a glorious wonderful reality if they would just receive it amen but instead they reject it so now the age of judaism has come to the final fulfillment and they have rejected it in that and of itself wrath has come upon them to the utmost Wrath, if you will, has come upon the Jewish religion to the utmost, to the Jewish rites. You understand? It's about what happened in the religious sect of Judaism, which is still propounding this idea. We've got to squash these gospel preachers, right? Okay. Uh, This was a heartbreaking situation for Paul, a devout Jew himself. Consider his words in Romans 9. He says, verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Here Paul is pouring out his heart. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart because of these Israelites, these Jews who have rejected all that God sought to do in them. All that the Jews stood for, their election by God, their calling to be his servant and bear his word down through the ages, 
to be God's covenant people, to be the chosen race of the Messiah himself. All of these they have rejected to the utmost, even now continuing in their opposition and stiff-necked rebellion against God's gospel. This causes Paul to make this woeful statement, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. What more could be said of this Jewish rejection of Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Their sins had piled up and reached their limit. Paul knew their religious system and the age of their glory had passed. Even though this statement was prior to the judgment of 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people annihilated, one must wonder if Paul had some prophetic knowledge of this soon coming event. Now you may not be aware, not only was the temple building torn down, the temple sacrifice and all of the religious tradition, the ceremonial religious law, the tradition that was kept in the temple, not only was that all torn down and destroyed, but let me tell you, 1.1 million Jews were killed in that uh, Roman offensive. Now that was a horrific scene, let me tell you. Uh, if you're interested, Pastor Tim, when he taught through Matthew, uh, presented a tremendously enlightening history lesson on what happened uh, in the destruction of the Jews. There's a book by Josephus. It's called The Jewish War, I believe. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Which actually gives the history of what took place there. Astounding devastation. Astounding devastation. They literally crucified tens of thousands of Jewish people. The Romans crucified tens of thousands of Jewish people along the highways and byways that led out of Jerusalem during this time. And, and ultimately, there were 1.1 million Jews that were killed. The, the scene in Jerusalem in 70 AD was something that was absolutely desolate, and absolutely, totally destroyed. Okay? You understand Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse when he says, when you see these things start to come to pass, you better flee to the mountains. You better not even go back inside to get your coat. And you better hope it's not a Sabbath. <laughs> right? Because, of course, he was speaking with near and far implications, of course, but with the near implication of these things are right around the corner. These temple buildings are coming down. And um, when that happened, it was a serious, serious thing. The Jewish people were annihilated. They were scattered. It's called the diaspora in history. It's when the Jews were scattered to the nations. So if you will, in, in, uh, back in the, in the Jewish exile to Babylon, that was a little type of the big fulfillment of the diaspora that took place in 70 AD. And the Jewish nation was scattered. Okay, From that time forward, there was only a very, very small remnant of Jewish people that lived in the land. And from that time forward until 1948, the Jews had lived as aliens and strangers in every other country in the world. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the amazing story is that these Jewish people for some 1900 years were scattered to all the nations under the sun and yet they are now an ethnic group of people gathered back into their homeland. The, the, the odds of such a thing happening like that are astounding. But the very thing that kept it happening was their Jewish religion. This is another astounding thing. That they were so concerned about their bloodline that they would constantly keep track of their genealogies and they would constantly keep track of who they were. And uh, not only that, but they are uh, pretty easy to recognize. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, not only because of, of, of the way they look, but because of the way they live and because of the things they do and because of the things that have held them together through all of this time, that in the providence of God, 
he has now brought them back, as he did prophesy by the same prophets that they killed, (laughs) that they would again be gathered back into the land. And that was a prophecy that took place with more than one prophet in more than one place in your Old Testament. Right? The whole prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, is a prophecy of that exactly, that God would again gather the Israelites back into their homeland in the last days. So, going on here, know for sure that just a few short years from the time of Paul's writing this, that destruction that came upon the Jews at the Roman invasion of Jerusalem in 70 AD was indeed a terrible one. Not only did Titus the Roman general kill some 1.1 million Jews, but the nation was literally scattered to the wind and their temple and entire system of sacrifice and offering came to an end. Of this end and judgment from God's hand, the Jewish religion has never recovered, and to this day, some 2,000 years later, they still have no temple sacrifice. This begs the question, what about the modern religion of Judaism? How should we view it? in light of the gospel and the Christian age. One should consider that from a religious perspective, they still remain under the terrible wrath of judgment and blindness from God, so much so that they teach their people to abhor the Christian Messiah and to reject him and the gospel utterly. So now I'm asking the question and asking it with you, what about the modern religion of Judaism? What about it? One might even ask, is a Jew saved? Does a Jew go to heaven? Okay, let me help you. No. Okay, now you understand there are actually Christians who teach that. That through their system of of Judaism, that they have some salvation with God. Which salvation they can't really articulate to you, but nevertheless that's what they believe. Um, Now family. Why can't a religious Jew today be saved? Somebody tell me. <laughs> okay, because they don't receive Christ as a Messiah. Amen? And, and of course, uh, she's quoting John 14, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Christ is the only way to be saved. That's the message. That's why they're killing him. That's why they killed him. Because he preached that message to them, and they killed him. And then his apostles went out and preached that message, and guess what? They killed them too. All of them. (laughs) And they were persecuting the brand new baby Christians in Thessalonica for preaching the same thing. Listen, the religion of Judaism teaches that Jesus is not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. Don't trust him. Don't believe him. He's not the Messiah. Christianity is a farce, is the message of Judaism in regard to Christianity. You understand? So they're still utterly rejecting the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about the religion of Judaism. I'm not suggesting that we should be um, anti-Semitic. And I am not talking about a racial issue at all. Are you with me? I'm talking about the religion of Judaism and what it teaches, what are its doctrines, what are its tenets. It is opposed to the gospel, okay? Now, I'm not by that trying to engender hatred toward Jewish people. God forbid, right? We do that, we'll find ourselves under the curse of God. Amen? Amen? Yeah, Joe? Mm -hmm. Right. So in the purpose of God, They are blinded for now, right? Nevertheless, I I don't want you to be confused about this. One of the popular teachers that teaches that Jews are actually saved is Pat Robertson. Did you know that? (laughs) And, And so, you know, here you have these, you know, fully evangelical Christians who have this kind of idea that's absolutely in opposition to the gospel. Makes you wonder where he went to school and learned his theology. Yeah, you with me? So um, the reason I point that out is, there's, there's this. I remember being a young Christian and thinking, well, what about the Jews? You know, they're God's people. Aren't they saved? And 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 it was because at that point in time, I didn't see real clearly what 
salvation was, how it happened, right? And so I kind of wonder, always wondered about that. Well, these are God's chosen people. Aren't these the people who have God's favor? Well, let me tell you, right now they're not under God's favor. They're under his wrath. And that wrath looks like blindness. They can't see the truth. Wrath has come upon them to the utmost, okay? Until the day that they say, blessed be the name of the Lord and receive Christ as their Messiah, they are under blindness. But that day is coming soon. Amen? I'm going to run out of time here. This religious teaching could not be more demonic. Listen, to go around telling people that Jesus is not the Christ, (laughs) you, you you cannot have a more demonic message than that. That one's straight from hell. Are you with me? Can I get an amen? Amen. Jesus is the Christ. And unless you trust in him, you cannot be saved. Are you with me? Okay. It is in direct opposition to God's way of salvation, which salvation modern Judaism rejects and opposes so as to be without hope and without God in the world. Clearly stated, the modern Jewish religion stands in the same place that it stood in the first century opposing the gospel and hindering the Gentiles from being saved, teaching that Jesus is not the Christ. Even today, Jews can become angrily provoked at the mention and discussion about Jesus being the Christ. Because of this rejection, they remain under the wrath of God. It is important to note, however, that although the religious Jews throughout history have persecuted the true messengers of God as they do today, There has always been a faithful remnant among God's chosen people who love him and faithfully follow him. Of this, Paul writes in Romans 11, verses 1 and following. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets and have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And there is a remnant today of ethnic Jews who receive and accept Christ as the Messiah and are saved. They are Jewish Christians. Okay, you with me? God hasn't rejected his people utterly. The gospel is still preached. And God's chosen people are still called. And by the Spirit of God, they come to faith. And many of them are Jews. Amen? You may even know some. Let me tell you, they're zealous Christians too, aren't they? (laughs) They got that zeal running in the blood, man. Paul goes on to speak about the glorious restoration of the Jews when God's purposes have reached their fulfillment. At that time, they will be reconciled to God through a massive conversion that God has promised through the prophet Zechariah, chapters 12 through 14, and others wherein the entire surviving ethnic population of Israel will be saved at the revelation of Jesus Christ at his coming. Of this, Paul writes in Romans 11 and says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. God has a yet glorious plan for Israel in the future days, but not until he lifts the blindness from their eyes to see the glory of Messiah and receive him as their king and savior. So here's what I'm telling you. And we're going to end right here. Romans 11. If you look at it, I want to point something out to you. There's controversy about this passage, of course, like there is with all of the Bible. Romans 11, the point that Paul is making is that the entire ethnic population of Jews will be saved 
at God's appointed time in history. Okay? That's disputed from this text in Romans 11. Okay? What they say instead is, is that, no, what it means is, is that all of the individual Jews that God intends to save throughout the history of the church are in fact going to believe the gospel and be saved, and thus all Israel will be saved. Okay? I'm telling you, that's faulty. It doesn't come from the context of this passage, and I want to show you why, and then we're going to end. If you look in verse 11, he begins this whole discussion in contrast about they and them and their. Okay? They and them and their. I want you to go back. I want you to read Romans 11. I want you to pay attention to these words. They and them and their. And you. Okay? The you here is the Gentiles. The they and the them is ethnic Israel and believing Israel. And Paul makes a distinction in this passage between ethnic Israel and believing Israel. His point in the first part is, well, those Jews who believe, they're saved, and there's a remnant of those, I, Paul, and one, and one of them. Okay, that's believing Israel. Then, later on, as the passage develops, he begins talking about ethnic Israel, the unbelieving Israel, the nation of Israel, the one that's got Abraham's blood running through their veins. Okay? He calls them, they. Okay? As he goes on in this passage of scripture and he makes this distinction between believing Israel and unbelieving Israel, he makes the point that ultimately there's going to come a point in history when they will all be saved. So as you're reading through this passage, listen to what I'm telling you, look at the context and look at the contrast that Paul uh, begins to describe in verses 17 through um, 25. And his point is, is that there is this distinction between believing Israel and ethnic Israel. And when he finishes his discussion, the point is, is that ethnic Israel is going to be saved. Okay, now, if you read that in light of the prophecies in the Old Testament, specifically Zechariah 12 through 14, which is unmistakably clear, okay, you will see there that God intends to save the entire ethnic nation of Israel. Here's how it's going to happen. Jesus is going to show up in the sky, and on that day, he's going to pour out a spirit of grace and supplication upon the whole nation of ethnic Israel. And the whole nation is going to be saved, receiving Christ by regeneration and by receiving him by faith at that point in time. It's going to pour out a spirit of mourning on the whole house of Israel. And they're all going to mourn. Why are they going to mourn? Somebody tell me. Because they killed him. And now their eyes are opened. And guess what? The blindness is taken away. The partial hardening in part comes to its fulfillment after the full number of Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved. Okay? So here's the deal, family. You ready? Here's... Here's, here's lesson number 172 in eschatology. It's this. There is a future Israel. Okay? Don't forget that, and don't let anybody mislead you according to that. I'm going to help you with that as time goes on here in this study. But uh, these are some of the passages where you're going to learn that in the Bible. Okay? Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we look at the course of history of humankind on the earth and we marvel at the things that you have done it is amazing God that these things would take place it is absolutely stunning Lord that you would gather those dry bones from every nation from which they've been scattered and bring them back into their land so that you could prepare to show up in all your glory and save them all. God, I pray that our heart would be turned toward all men, including the Jews, and that, Father, we would be faithful witnesses of your gospel and faithful witnesses of your love for them all. God, help us 
Help us to see and understand the times that we live in, God. Help us to rise to the occasion and be the gospel ministers that you've called us to be. Help us to be that royal priesthood, that holy nation, God. Father, open our eyes and help us not to be so caught in our religious tradition that we forget the purpose for which you called us. We thank you for these amazing things that are recorded in your word. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we would just treasure your word more and more as each day, as each week, as each month goes by. Lord, that you and your word would be such such a treasure to us, God, that we would constantly have our nose in your word, seeking to know and understand you, seeking to love you with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. We thank you for the great privilege of being adopted into your family as your children. We thank you for all that you're doing in our life by your spirit. We honor you and we bless you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen.